Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May of 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Season two. Season two. It begins now. <laughs> I don't know how to start. I mean, give me like a, a show. Give me a, like a, a, a really good season two show. Oh, my God. Uh, Lost. Okay, give me another one. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. I haven't right, seen you know. that one. Oh, yeah. That's uh, Frasier. Uh, let's go back to Lost. <laughs> <Let's go laughs> right. right. Okay, okay. All right, all right, all right. What happens in the beginning of season two? Oh, they open the hatch. Oh, okay. They good. open the hatch and they go down and they get, they crawl down the ladder and they find an angry Scotsman there and he fires a gun at them and he asks like, hey, what what does one snowman say to the other? And then it goes from there and so on and so forth. We can't lead with that. <laughs> no, but it starts with a great Mama Cass song. It plays make your own kind of music. It's really cool. It's it's a it's a great season two starter. All right, there we go. That's how we're gonna start. What's in the fucking hatch, man? Marcus, <laughs> go find that hatch. There's well, a Scottish person. There's Mama Cass is down there. <laughs> Let's open. Open it up. <laughs> Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. And this is season two, where we explore our favorite bands in the rock subgenre, collectively known as alternative. So out of all the genre designations in rock music, very few are as broad as alternative. Unlike, say, punk or rockabilly, alternative is not the most evocative term. Yeah. Partly, this is because alternative was a term created by record company marketing executives to replace the cumbersome classification of college rock. So named because bands in the 80s like R.E.M., The Replacements, Camper Von Beethoven, and The Pixies were mostly played on college radio stations like my alma mater, 88.1 KTXT FM Lubbock. <laughs> you, always, you always find a way to just... Ease that in an everyday conversation. <laughs> yeah, man, I miss it. I miss it. I miss the old KTXT. They fucking shut it down and then brought it back as a shadow of its former self. I miss it so much. <laughs> Lovick lost something essential when they shut down that station. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> now, in 2021, genre designations like alternative are effectively meaningless. To put it simply, let's compare it to eating out. And so, the, I'm, I'm a child. <laughs> I'm such a child. God, working with you and Henry is just two sides of the same fucking coin. I know. 
Anyway, continue, continue, continue. In the past, choosing a music genre used to be like choosing from one of ten or so restaurants on a single city block. Country, rock, oldies, classical, etc. Very simple. Today, though, music genres are so numerous that it's like walking into a food festival held in a stadium parking lot with thousands of food trucks that all sell fusion cuisine. Like fucking post-hardcore noise rap or Eastern European bluegrass funk. <laughs> and you know what? That's fine. Except just don't put any aioli in it. <laughs> just don't put any aioli in my bluegrass funk and we're good. I like garlic. I like mayo, but they should never meet. Never ever. Jesus Christ, if you own a Brooklyn restaurant, stop putting aioli in everything. We just started season two and we both found our hills to die. <laughs> and it's been five minutes. This is great. Continue. And while there are plenty of great modern bands who exist in this space, I mean, you got... Black Country New Road, Catholic Action, The Comet is Coming, Black Midi, Fontaine's DC, Sorry, The Garden, Hines, and Idols. Yes, Idols. Yeah. The roots of all these bands are in what used to be known as alternative. Now, I think what makes alternative hardest to pin down is that it's a negative definition, as in it's defined by what it's not rather than what it is. Like if I describe the color blue as not yellow. So let's try to find a positive definition of alternative. And in doing so, we can also gain some insight into what made the band we'll be covering first this season so goddamn special. See, where pop music is a reflection of culture and punk is a reflection of society, alternative is more a reflection of the artist themselves. In other words, this isn't about making music to be successful or making music to make a point. Rather, this is music that is for somebody whether it be for other weird kids like yourself or to satisfy the urge to express some inner truth. In other words, we're going to be talking about some very sensitive boys and girls this season. And that's great because we just moved into this glass house. <laughs> so it really, we're in the neighborhood. It's yeah. great. <laughs> but just because it's for yourself doesn't mean it's masturbatory. Because when we think about the word for, I think most alternative music, while it is made for the sake of creativity, it's still made with an audience in mind. For example, when you're making unconventional music with no audience in mind, it usually falls in the experimental category, which, let's face it, has a tendency to be more masturbatory. Yeah. I, I love experimental music. I make experimental music. Yes. <laughs> but most people don't want to hear it because it's not really for anyone. Or maybe just his wife, because I get to hear it all the time. <laughs> yeah, and you like it. But if you're making unconventional music that's for an audience, you're getting closer to the realm of alternative. Sometimes, though, a band makes music that is barely noticed in their own time, but instead finds their true audience years later. And our first band this season certainly falls into this category. This band was made up of truly unconventional people trying to find their place in 1960s America, but they were too dark, too abrasive, too mean, and just too goddamn real to fit in with the hippie movement that seemed to be swallowing up all the weirdo air. <laughs> that, I like that. That's a good writer's <laughs> line. All right. That's great. But you have to be fair. The hippies did bring a lot to the they, culture. Like They brought roomy minivans yeah that's and good. road trips yeah and, and festivals they did thanks to hippies we have festivals i don't know if that's true but i'm gonna make it true <laughs> kind of sorta and you know and this band also isn't immune from 1960s turns of phrase different colors made of tears are you fucking kidding me <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the most 60s lines i've ever fucking heard but this band was a conglomeration of musicians artists and writers who collectively chose rock and roll as their medium 
just as a sculptor uses clay. And all this back when rock and roll was still considered a low art fad by most quote unquote serious people. (laughs) But with this band, that low art was combined with high art. And when those perspectives converged and were combined with a reflection of the artists who made the music, the result was the Velvet Underground and the beginnings of Alternative. Now, for sources, Carolina went above and beyond for this series, as she always does. Thank you. So I'm going to let her read out the stack of books she used for research on this series. Because, again, she is the research brain of the show. I cannot stress this hard enough. I have a brain. (laughs) It is is there. It is in my head. And it read, it read, (laughs) The Life of Lou Reed, Notes from the Velvet Underground by Howard Soons, Lou Reed by Anthony DeCurtis. Transformer, The Complete Lou Reed Story by Victor Bacris, The Velvet Underground Companion, Four Decades of Commentary Compiled by Albin Zach III, and White Light, White Heat, The Velvet Underground Day by Day by Richie Unterberger, which is also a very, very decent read, and Delmore Schwartz and The Life of an American Poet by James Atlas, and Chronicles 1, Part 1 by uh, Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. And that's just for us to get started for this part one. Yeah, yeah, that's today. Yes. Yes. So as we do the other parts, uh, part two, part three, part four and everything, we'll add more books to it. And, uh, you know, I'll make sure to mention them at the end of the episode. And at the very end of the series, we'll name them all in case you're interested in reading them, because I've been getting some messages of like, what books do you use? I'm like, I'll show you exactly where we're going to put them at the end of the series. Yep. They're going to be right there for you. It's the gold at the end of the rainbow. Yes. Now, seeing that the Velvet Underground is one of the most important and influential bands in rock history is kind of like saying that George Washington was an important figure in American history. It's just sort of understood. But this band is a cornerstone of more than just American culture. Rather, the Velvet Underground is an Earth treasure. We bring this from Earth. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> I like that. Should have been on the gold fucking record. Now, this was a band so powerful that their songs alone helped bring about the end of communism in the former Czechoslovakia simply by virtue of existing. <laughs> it's not like Lou Reed went over there and made a bunch of speeches. And we'll get into the full story at the end of the series, and it's a fantastic story. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the Velvet Underground was a domino in the toppling of <laughs> communism in Eastern Europe. It's fucking insane. 
Famously, musician and producer Brian Eno said that while very few people bought the first Velvet Underground record in 1967, every person who did went out and started a band. And it was those bands that helped define first punk and then alternative music for decades to come. So, in order to see exactly how the Velvet Underground happened, let's start the story with their lead singer and principal songwriter, Lou Reed. Or Lewis Allen Reed. Or Lewis Rabinowitz. Oh, well, actually, his father, yeah, his father changed his, the name from Rabinowitz to Reed. Mm-hmm. And so, he, over his crib, it said, where the mobile was, Lewis Allen Reed. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Yes, yeah, so, but soon to be known as Lou Reed, like you said. Well, he was born right here in Brooklyn, New York, on March 2nd, 1942. And he came from like a very regular middle-class Jewish family. His dad, Sidney, who changed his name from Rabinowitz, uh, he was an accountant. And his mom, Toby, you know, Lou's mom, uh, she was a stenographer, like a secretary, like mm-hmm. a typist lady, uh, turned homemaker once she married Sidney. And together, they had Lou and then his younger sister five years later. So... Perfect little family. Wasn't his mom also a beauty queen, like a former beauty queen? She won a local pageant, like prettiest stenographer in all of New York. <laughs> and she was very pretty. She was one of those like very pretty, like suburban moms, like, dude, your mom's hot. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Stepford wife. Yes. Kinda, <laughs> yes. But she was very sweet. Yeah. So Lou and his family lived in Brooklyn until he was about nine when they were finally able to afford to buy their own house mm-hmm. in Freeport, Long Island. That was about an hour drive from Brooklyn and it's deep in the suburbs, you know, a safe neighborhood in a nice house with a yard milkman at your door kids on their bikes you know that kind of 1950s suburban life yeah it's picturesque yes it's, this is fucking norman rockwell right and and lou reed is edward scissorhands <laughs> in this yeah because okay so he was actually known as the quiet kid but he had a few close friends he got good grades he liked to play basketball and tennis he was even on the track team at his high school but there was also a side of lou that was Difficult. Yes. Lou could be difficult. Difficult is going to be a word we're going to be using a lot this series. I have never heard a single person described as nasty so much in my entire life. (laughs) It's like that just again and again, like Lou Reed, he's a nasty person. Nasty. That's right. He could be confrontational and hostile. And a lot of this probably had to do with his anxiety issues. Yeah. Because according to Lou's younger sister, Lou would get panic attacks. He'd be avoidant and withdrawn from social situations. Like he would refuse to meet anyone who was coming into the house. He's like, I didn't know they were coming to the house. And he just locked the door in his room and hide under his desk. And he also had a very fragile temperament, which got a lot worse in his teenage years. Mm-hmm. So that anxiety and that angst, which could be very relatable, except he could also, like you said, be nasty he could be a total dick and there's no excuse for that <laughs> i give him a three out of four on the eric clapton nastiness game <laughs> <laughs> well so eric clapton is four out of four yeah obviously that's a perfect score <laughs> congratulations eric clapton you're the nastiest person around <laughs> anyway now like a lot of musicians who emerged in the 60s and 70s lou reed discovered early rock and roll through the radio specifically by listening to new york city radio djs like alan freed and Murray the K. Those guys are the originators of rock and yeah. roll radio. Reed said that New York radio showed him that there was a world outside of Long Island. Life on this planet, as he put it. And among the more influential of tunes, according to Reed, was a little known track from Alicia and the Rockaways called Why Can't I Be Loved? Now, this song sounds fairly standard on its own. But when you put it into the context of Lou Reed's early musical influences, one can hear its echoes 
throughout Lou Reed's entire songwriting career. It's not an A to B type of thing, Mm -hmm. but you hear the echoes, definitely. Yeah. Now, by high school, Lou Reed had begun to actually play music. And after he and a couple of his friends put together what they called a Little Richard act at a high school talent show. (laughs) As long as they didn't do anything to their faces, it's fine. That sounds great. Yeah. A neighbor approached them saying he had contacts in the music industry. Now, this wasn't quite as odd as you might think, because remember, Long Island is very close to New York City. And in the late 50s, New York was still where most of the players in the music industry operated, big and small. And a lot of those guys lived in Long Island. Yeah. Taking the L-I-R-R into the city every day. So Lou and his friends Richard and Phil, and what a fucking Long Island trio that is. (laughs) Lou, Richie, and Phil. (laughs) They put together a group called The Shades and played Long Island bars, parties, and shopping malls on weekends in an early rock and roll style reminiscent of the Everly Brothers. R.I.P. Don. Passed away just last week. Eventually, The Shades even recorded a few songs, but did so as The Jades because there were, not surprisingly, already dozens of groups Called the Shades. Get it? Because we wear our sunglasses all the time. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Not a genius (laughs) from the (laughs) get-go. This song right here, this is Leave Her For Me, with Phil singing and Lou Reed backing him up on oohs, ahs, and guitar. Take away the ocean. Take away the sea. Take away the sunshine. I could see him in the back. Oh, yeah, definitely. No, it's a great song. It's like a 1950s version of Jolene. I like it. Yeah. But while Lou Reed's music in high school was pretty standard for the time and place, his creative writing projects were what you might call a bit much for suburban Long Mm -hmm. Island in the 50s. Influenced by contemporary beat writers like Jack Kerouac, Lou Reed wrote sex and violence short stories that alluded to secret gay liaisons in which the protagonist would catch someone of indeterminate gender having sex in a public bathroom. Wink, wink. 
<laughs> and this discovery would inevitably lead to a brutal beating. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that was a little bit much for the suburbanites. <laughs> I mean, he was reading a lot of Henry Miller, uh, some Marquis de Sade stuff, and, and writing these stories and poetry, basically, yeah, directly influenced by all these. And when his friends would read his stuff, uh, they would ask about it. They're like, hey, wh- wh- what's up with all the sex and violence and all this uh, fun gay stuff that you're doing? And Lou would just respond with, like, don't you ever think about this stuff? Like, like sex and violence and experimenting, just like fantasies? And his friends would be like, no, actually, we don't. <laughs> and Lou would just shrug and say, well, this is life. This is what people think about. This is what I think about. Yeah. And that's the thing is that you got to find the other people that think about the stuff that you think about. Right. Yeah. Now, concerning Lou Reed's sexuality, some writers that we read believe that it's the skeleton key to understanding both Lou Reed's life and his music. And those writers place Reed firmly in the confused homosexual space. Others, however, us included, believe that while Lou Reed's sexuality is certainly important, it was either something that he was not even able to figure out himself, or it was something that he purposefully muddled to make himself more interesting. And why not? And why not? I mean, really knowing as much as we do about Lou Reed's personality, uh, the latter is probably more likely. It probably is. I mean, it's difficult to ascertain what his sexuality was. And believe me, there are plenty of people who asked. Yeah. (laughs) And Lou had said in interviews, yeah, I'm gay. Or later, wait, I'm marrying a woman. And then, oh, no, I'm actually something else. Or his other answer, what's the difference? Yeah, which is probably the right answer right he liked to keep everyone guessing and maybe as you said it was part of the fun but what's been said from the people who knew him was that he was either bisexual or maybe even fluid or just an experimenter whatever it was there definitely wasn't a term for it in the 1950s long island suburbs god no like remember this is back in the day when homosexuality was completely taboo at least not out in the open yeah i mean it's not like today where you know you have gay couples living in the suburbs and waving to their neighbors uh, and kissing each other goodbye in the driveway like this is a time when homosexuality is a dirty, dark secret right? for the vast, vast majority of America, if not the vast majority of the world. Yeah, that's true. But oh, so going back to Lou Reed's life story during his teenage years, he only dated women, but still not conventionally. Like while his friends dated the nice girl next door or like Becky from chem class, <laughs> Lou never had a steady girlfriend. Like he would often go out with girls who supposedly had bad reputations or what floozies or whatever the term was at the time. Mm-hmm. And then Lou would discard them as quickly floozies. as he met them. Floozies, right? Loose yeah. women? Yeah, loose women. Yeah, flu- yeah, I guess floozy is, yeah, it's like, Lou, what are you doing with that floozy? Like Blanche. Yeah. <laughs> now that's a floozy, yeah. yeah. But we don't flooze shame here. Yeah. <laughs> no. Not at all. Not, Not in all. the 1950s. Not at all. I dated my fair share of floozies. Okay. <laughs> I married a floozy. Hey! <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're moving on. All right. So Lou even told his friends at the time, I like girls with black hearts. So he was a bad boy who liked bad girls, I guess. <laughs> I mean, he did rebel a lot by drinking beer, smoking pot, hanging out with girls of supposed questionable morality, mm-hmm. you know, talking back and arguing with his parents. Because remember, he had a fragile temper and he seemed to enjoy challenging people or confronting them for whatever reason. Like the time in high school when Lou walked into his like neighborhood candy store where the kids would hang out and a girl from his class saw him and smiled and asked, hey, Lou, did you just get a haircut? And Lou just responds with that, oh, fuck you, Carol. <laughs> and walks away. Like, what, the Carol's like, what the fuck happened? 
And Lou's like, where's the goddamn Chupa Chups? <laughs> Bring me the black licorice. <laughs> I said I want Taffy. <laughs> that was the kind of attitude he would give out all the time. Yeah. And that attitude frightened Lou's parents. They didn't know how to deal with this rebellious teenager. You know, because his parents, they grew up in a different era, like during the Depression, where you don't disobey your parents, much less talk back. Yeah. You're trying to survive. Yeah, man. But now we're in Rebel Without a Cause era right now. And Lou was doing all that. The talking back, the disobeying. They argued. They shouted at each other. A door slamming. A, a lot of, you can't tell me what to do. Things. I don't want your life. Yes, yeah. a lot of that. <laughs> and a lot of that seems like teenage rebellion stuff, but there was a lot more to it. Like Lou was struggling with depression and anxiety. Mm. Stuff that was kept quiet in 1950s America. And this might have exacerbated his behavior. Like one difficult point in Lou's life was after he graduated from high school. He enrolled in NYU and moved to the uptown campus in the Bronx. There, he only lasted months until his parents had to go and get him because he had suffered a nervous breakdown. Yeah. His sister said that when they brought Lou home, he was limp and unresponsive. We don't know exactly what happened there, but it was enough for his parents to realize that their son now needed professional help. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, this was 1950s professional help. Yes. Where the doctor immediately thought he might be schizophrenic. And the doctor even went as far as to suggest that Lou was in this condition because Lou's mother hadn't picked him up enough when he was a baby. Yeah. So Lou's mom just cried and cried, fearing that she did something wrong. She also suffered from anxiety as well. And she had that I need to be a perfect mother and wife thing, you know, that upbringing of back in the day. And Lou's dad, Sidney, he, he also grew up old school. Like he saw his old tactics of sending Lou to his room or grounding him and telling him what to do. Like none of those things seemed to work and it really confused them. So on the advice of these medical professionals, Lou's parents consented to let them do whatever they needed to make Lou better. He was very lucky he didn't get a lobotomy. Yeah. Well, so after, <laughs> yeah. So after Lou's nervous breakdown at NYU, he was prescribed a thrice weekly, eight week long treatment of old school electroshock therapy, ostensibly to treat his severe depression, anxiety and possible schizophrenia. Nowadays, ECT, as electroshock therapy is now called, it's painless. It works on severe depression when nothing else can make a dent. And I've heard people swear by the effectiveness of modern ECT. You're out like a light. Like you you are actually put under before it happens. And it doesn't feel bad at all. This was not the case in 1959. First of all, the institution where Reed's electroshock therapy was done, Creedmoor, was a hellhole on a rapid downhill course. By the 70s, conditions had become so bad that three rapes, 22 assaults, 52 fires, six suicides, a shooting, and a riot all occurred within 20 months of each other. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's uh, terrible. But how do you get to a 50-second fire? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at this point, do we all agree, like, no more fires? Yeah, I mean... Like, I, no I, more fire Friday! <laughs> I have a hard time figuring out, how do you get to the third fire? Oh, man, that's rough. Yeah, 52 fires. And, and this, you know, this is, of course, you know, about uh, 20 years after Lou Reed was there, maybe 10 years after Lou Reed was there. Uh, but still, the seeds were planted. It's called Creedmoor. That is the name of a crooked mental institution. Second, Reed was also given the antipsychotic Thorazine, which caused a never-ending restlessness that's often seen in old movies about psychiatric institutions in which zonked-out patients are seen endlessly shuffling from one side of the room to the other. The famous Thorazine shuffle. 
Lastly, the electroshock therapy was so badly administered that Lou later claimed that it temporarily destroyed his short-term memory and made him feel as if he was perpetually stuck in a bad acid trip with none of the benefits. However, concerning Reed's electroshock treatments, there's a fair amount of disinformation out there, and that disinformation came specifically from Lou Reed. You see what I've been telling you? (laughs) Three out of four. Three out of four. I used the word disinformation on purpose. Lou claimed in a 1979 interview with Cream Magazine that his parents forced him into electroshock treatments as a kind of gay conversion therapy. Now, there were certainly a lot of people who were tortured by this brutal brand of aversion therapy, where the pain of electroshocks are associated with homosexual images, while heterosexual images are marked with an absence of pain. But Lou Reed was not one of those people. According to Lou Reed's sister, Bunny, their parents were certainly anxious and controlling. She admits that. But they were ultimately Long Island Jewish liberals who were in no way homophobic. And as we said, the only reason why they gave Lou this treatment was because the doctors told them that this was the only way to bring him back from his breakdown. Yeah, I mean, he was anxious. He was hiding under a desk. They don't care if he's gay or not. They just want their son to be like, okay. They want their son to be a functional human being. Right. That's that's baseline. And then maybe later he could marry a nice Jewish girl. (laughs) That's his mom always at the end of that. She always tacks that on. (laughs) But no matter the reason, Reed came away from his ECT experience with nothing more than a letter from a psychiatrist that had accused Reed of being a schizophrenic that regularly hallucinated spiders crawling on the wall. And of course, Lou Reed later uh, framed that letter and put and kept it on his wall. It's a cool letter to have. Of course he did. <laughs> it's, he is like, it, it's, there's so many like the seeds of goth, you know, in all mm-hmm. of this. Like, yeah, that's my... Uh, my spider letter. <laughs> Got that from a psychiatrist. You want to come over and see my spider letter? <laughs> Boy, do I. <laughs> so, okay. So after all that, uh, by 1960, this is a few months later after his electroshock therapy, Lou started to feel better and he decided to try to go to college again. But instead of going back to NYU, he went to Syracuse University. And Syracuse, that's where we saw Weird Al. Yeah. And I got food poisoning at that awful restaurant. That's right. But Weird Al was great. Well, that's the fun part about Syracuse. (laughs) Weird Al was great. (laughs) Loved it. And yeah, that's where Lou went to school. So Lou came in as a freshman, and luckily he already had a friend from his neighborhood in Freeport, Alan, Alan Hyman, and who was already a sophomore by then. And he already knew all the going-ons and the happenings at school. So Alan was excited to bring Lou under his wing and told him, like, I'm going to show you the quad, the cool place to sit in the cafeteria, introduce you to all my friends. Oh, and you should join the fraternity that I'm in, where the Sigma Alpha Mu, we call ourselves the Sammies. Mm. Why don't you come to a rush party and I'll introduce you to some of the senior members and get you in with them. Just make sure you dress real nice for it. He's saying that to Lou Reed. (laughs) Yeah. So let's get into Lou Reed at a frat party. So Friday night comes Mm -hmm. and Lou just walks into the Sigma Alpha Mu frat party wearing a stained and tattered jacket. No tie. Real mess. Disheveled hair everywhere. Alan called him indescribable. (laughs) (laughs) But Alan still took him to meet the senior members who told Lou, you're dressed like a fucking bum. You expect to join this fraternity looking like that? To which Lou immediately replied with, 
I wouldn't join this frat even if you paid me, especially if you're in it. You're the biggest asshole I've ever met. You should kill yourself. Don't hold me back, Alan. This guy's a real jerk. So Lou takes, I mean, Alan takes Lou outside and asks him, like, dude, what are you doing? Why did you even come? And Lou said, because you asked me to. What a fucking asshole. And I like this jacket. Where are you going? Alan, Alan I wasn't going to wear pants. Anyway. That actually did not affect his friendship. No. Lou and Alan continued being friends throughout all of college, and they actually even started a band together called L.A. and the El Dorados. Yeah, and it was more than just a garage band. Like, this was a gigging band. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and they, you know, there was already a band called El Dorados, which is funny because they took it from a well-known band. But then they, they added the L.A., uh, La, the L.A. part, <laughs> Lou for L and A for Alan and the El Dorados. And yeah, as you said, with a couple other friends playing drums and bass and guitar, uh, they would go play at college parties and, and frat parties and make some extra money while going uh, to college. You know, that kind of stuff to get your laundry done. Part time job. Yep. Now, L.A. and the Eldorados were another standard late 50s rock and roll doo-wop cover band showing up at gigs in a flame-adorned 1959 Chrysler wearing matching gold lame vests. I would like to add that the Chrysler itself wasn't wearing a gold lame vest. <laughs> it was the people inside. Yes, yes. Later, Reed would say that L.A. and the Eldorados were so bad that they had to change their names constantly because venues would never book them twice. And while they did have to do this... The reason given is, again, another Lou Reed switcheroo. <laughs> See, venues refused to have L.A. and the Eldorados back because Lou Reed was a nightmare of a person who at times had to be physically dragged to the venues by his bandmates, where he'd then sulk and be intentionally hostile to everyone who came into his orbit. God. But being difficult wasn't the only thing that got L.A. and the Eldorados banned from performance spaces. Mostly, it was because Lou Reed would sometimes decide to play an original composition called the Fuck Around Blues, which was a little too spicy for Long Island in 1960. Yeah, all like the women at the frat party would be like, what's going on? <laughs> I mean, it's not even necessarily the frat party. It's more the shopping mall, I think. It's everywhere. And so they would have to come back and be like, uh, we're actually Pasha and the prophets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we are. Or Moses and his brothers. We're going to have to keep circulating this because no one likes us anymore. Yes, Lou would get intentionally hostile if things didn't go the way, uh, I mean, his way in yeah. a lot of ways. I mean, it had to be his way. Like, it had to be on his terms. Like, one time the band was booked to play on a boat cruising the St. Lawrence River as part of the entertainment for the afternoon. And once the band got there, Lou said, yeah, I'm not playing on a boat like that boat, especially. And his bandmates are like already exhausted by Lou and said, like, dude, you have to play. We came all the way here. We're at the docks. We booked the gig. They're paying us good money. It's only an hour. Let's just do this. Come on, Lou. <laughs> it's three against one. What are you going to do? Fight us? To which Lou responded by punching his hand through a plate glass door, injuring his guitar playing hand with blood just streaming down onto the floor. <laughs> so his bandmates, defeated by Lou again, uh -huh. just sighed and just took him to the emergency room where he got stitches. <laughs> Jesus. I don't even know how he explained that to the doctor. There. Like I said, I didn't want to play on that fucking boat with his arm all patched up or something. <laughs> but it has to be on his terms. Always. And you know what? And I think we're talking right now, we are given a lot of examples of how extremely difficult Lou Reed is when it comes to performance. Mm -hmm. He's not always like this. You know, like here in Long Island, like I think this is uh, one of those square peg round holes things. Right. Uh, and sometimes like when you try to 
to put a square peg into a round hole. Uh, some square pegs are a lot more difficult than others. Right. Uh, some of them scream. <laughs> but for some reason, Lou Reed's bandmate stuck with him. As one member put it, he and Lou really hit it off. But hit it off wasn't really the right term. With Lou, the best you could do was find commonality and then you just deal with his bullshit. This sentiment will become a familiar one as the series goes on. And really, part of the reason behind Lou Reed's erratic behavior could be that starting in college, he upgraded from just plain pot to full-on heroin. Whoa! <laughs> using it in such a casual way that it's hard to pin down exactly when he starts using. Right. Like, out of all the biographies that we found, every single one of them, to the letter, all just casually at one point go like, oh, and also he was doing heroin at some point. And it's not even, they don't even make a declarative sentence. They just sort of treat Lou Reed's heroin use as like, oh, they almost treat it like he's been doing heroin since he's five years old. <laughs> we don't know when it happened because he tried it a couple times here and there. He's just a dabbler. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a very strange thing. And obviously he's not going to be very forthcoming with that kind of information. <laughs> <laughs> obviously not. I, I mean, isn't there some debate as to whether he ever really did heroin in college? Yes, there is. Yeah. Some people but Syracuse said, no, he never did it. But then again, he has, Lou has many sides. He does. And those He's people- like a parfait. He's got- <laughs> you fucking Shrek me? You Shreking me right now? I'm Shreking you right now. <laughs> you know, it's got many layers to him. You know, there, there's the nice, the yogurt layer. There's uh -huh. the granola. There's a fruit layer. Yeah, I know what a fucking parfait is. <laughs> He's just different. <laughs> now, besides just playing in a band, Lou Reed also had a short-lived radio show on the Syracuse College Station called Excursions on the Third Rail, which got canceled because Reed insisted on playing music that was too edgy, too weird, and just too fucking much. Among Reed's selections was one of his heroes, Ornette Coleman, whose 1959 debut album, The Shape of Jazz to Come, went far beyond what most people at Syracuse could handle. Lay it on me. Let's check out Lonely Woman. Some strange shit. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, love Ornette Coleman. Especially that album's fucking great. But one of the upshots of Excursions on the Third Rail was that it led Lou Reed to a serendipitous encounter. One night in Lou's dorm, he heard someone on the floor below playing Lightning Hopkins records real goddamn loud, <laughs> which was perfect because Lou needed some new blues to play on his show. So he went downstairs and knocked on the door to find Jim Tucker, brother of future Velvet Underground drummer Maureen Tucker. Jim opened the door, fully expecting Lou to tell them to turn the music down. But when Lou explained that he was into it, he was invited inside where he met the dude Jim Tucker had been listening to records with. And that dude was Sterling Morrison, Whoa. the future guitarist of the Velvet Underground. Now, concerning this meeting, 
Lightning Hopkins plays more of a role than just an unknowing matchmaker. See, if you listen to Lightning Hopkins and keep the Velvet Underground in mind, you can hear how Sterling, especially on songs like Run Run Run, took a note or two from the blues. Looked over mountain One you ain't never seen Have you ever looked over mountain A mountain you've never seen Lay down in your bed and had one of them lonesome dreams. Shit mm. gives you the fucking chills. That is some wonderful devil tree right there. <laughs> I love this. What is that? I need that every day. <laughs> yeah, it's Lightning Hawkins' song called uh, Awful Dreams. And really, if you listen to Run, 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 I don't care if it's two fucking chords the entire time. We're just like just hitting one chord for a long, long, long time till take it. Do what you do. Like it's still a fucking blues song. Now during college, Lou and Sterling just talked music and occasionally jammed and nothing would come of their friendship for years to come. But Sterling was just one of the three people that Lou Reed would meet at Syracuse who would change the course of his artistic life. The second was Lou Reed's first muse. Shelly Albin. Oh, Shelly. Shelly Albin. So at this time, she's a brand new freshman at Syracuse University. She's majoring in art. She's going to her classes and making some friends. And one day after class, she's getting a ride from a friend and they're driving around in his car when they come across Lou Reed on the sidewalk. So Shelly's friend, you know, the driver in the car, he looks at her and says, that's Lou Reed. And he's evil. <laughs> he's evil. Oh, he's so evil. Look at Lou Reed. He's an evil man. And so the so the guy just pulled over and said, hey, Lou, you want to ride? <laughs> Let's pick up this evil man <laughs> and see what sorts of dastardly deeds he has for us. It does sound like, like a novel. Like <laughs> you pick up a hitchhiker. <laughs> so Lou... So are you evil? <laughs> Let's make a deal. <laughs> so Lou hops in and immediately Shelly and Lou felt this instant attraction to each other. And that ride only lasted a few minutes. But within an hour, Lou was calling Shelly up at her dorm room and asking her out. And she said, yes. No. Because <laughs> she was intrigued by this evil guy named Lou. <laughs> he was a bad boy, a rebel, a sophomore English major. Ooh, <laughs> but he's also hey, not bad looking. Yeah, they, hey, don't don't knock being an English major in college. Some girls are impressed. I am very impressed. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but Lou was not a bad looking guy. Like he was a lightweight kind of guy, wearing black jeans. You know, James Dean turtleneck tweed jacket with beatnik elbow patches and curly dark hair on top. It's 
pretty cute. So he's cute and he's bad. But there, he's actually more than that. He quickly told her about the electroshock therapy he had to undergo because of a nervous breakdown, mm -hmm. his time at the psychiatric hospital. And he pretty much made it known that he had a very needy and controlling personality. <laughs> and Shelly, on the other hand, is this young, naive, stunningly beautiful woman and just lovely to be around, which is why everyone was wondering what the hell she was doing with Luke. Yeah. Because he's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> but Shelly was hot for him and submitted to his neediness, but refused to be controlled by him, which made them a good match. That's a nice compromise. Yes, I'll be <laughs> okay. Your neediness is fine, but controlling? No, 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 no. Yes. You're not going to control me. You don't own me. Yeah. So the two of them would spend in time. The, I think in the last like two minutes, you've quoted like two Shangri-La songs. Uh, yeah, because we're, <laughs> well, we're in that era. I'm getting yeah. us in that era. I think you're one Shangri-La song and one Leslie Gore song. Yeah, you're doing great. Thank you. Where is the whiteboard? <laughs> <laughs> and the two of them, you know, they would spend time together while Lou would write a poem or a story. And then Shelly would draw or, or paint something about that poem or mm. story. So, you know, it was a cute, nerdy college thing to do. It's standard stuff that weirdos do together in college. I love it. <laughs> but Shelly Alban, besides just being a companion, she ended up inspiring what is now the most popular Velvet Underground song. And that wasn't the only song that she inspired. Deceptively simple in its execution, Lou Reed waited until the third Velvet Underground album to deploy this classic, although its simplicity does imply that it's fueled by the feelings of an emotionally underdeveloped college kid. That song is the sparse and beautiful Pale Blue Eyes. Love it. Sometimes I feel so happy Sometimes I feel so sad Sometimes I feel so happy But mostly you just make me mad Baby, you just make me mad Linger on I mean, that song wasn't written in college. Of course, anyone who knows that song well, there's a whole verse about marriage later on. Yeah. Uh, but it was directly inspired by Shelley because yes. Shelley would be a presence in Lou Reed's life for many years. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And she didn't have blue eyes, but it didn't matter. <laughs> it's still about her. Yeah. So, yeah, their relationship, Lou and Shelley's relationship, it's pretty much like the song. They had some good times. They had some stormy times. Mm -hmm. And after a while, Lou started letting his guard down a little bit with Shelly. Remember, Lou has been doing drugs. Yeah. All kinds of drugs. Not just the pot that he started in high school, but also popping pills, taking one too many Placidils, dropping acid, and of course, dabbling in heroin, <laughs> which is, I don't know, there's not many people who are casual visitors at the Big H. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. But no, Lou no. could be. He could be. Like, yeah, no one, I, I would say there are, there's one 
person on this fucking earth who is a casual heroin user, <laughs> and that was Lou Reed. No one else can do that. He's sick boy. Yeah. <laughs> and from train spotting, yeah. he's sick boy. Yep. So Lou was even dealing drugs in college. He sold weed at the fraternity houses and even got Shelly to hide his drug stash in her room. Lou even got Shelly to come with him to Harlem so he can score some drugs in a rundown seedy apartment building right there on Lexington Avenue in 125th Street. Uh. Lexington, 125. <laughs> and Shelly... She's sick and dirty. Okay. <laughs> Shelly didn't do any of these drugs. She didn't even drink. But she still allowed Lou to have peyote sent from Arizona to her address to hold for him. <laughs> so uh, after about a year or so of dating, this was about the time that she was starting to realize that Lou was maybe just using her. Yeah. So the last straw was when they were at a party where Lou was playing at with his band and one of his friends came up to her and told her that Lou was getting a blowjob and wanted to let her know that she was invited to come and watch. She finally Ugh. had enough yeah. and walked out of that party saying, that's it. I'm done. Yeah. It's over. Oh, no, that's too much. And right. also, PSA, you can't dabble in heroin. I'm not talking with <laughs> Caroline. I'm talking to the listener. You cannot dabble in heroin. No one, Just don't do it. Don't try it. You're not Lou Reed. Don't dabble in heroin. You can't do it. Don't try it. Don't try it. Don't try. <laughs> but as important as Shelley was to Lou Reed in the Muse department, the most important influence to Lou Reed in a literary sense during this time period was a washed up creative writing professor named Delmore Schwartz. Now, Schwartz had become a literary darling at the age of 25 when he published a short story called In Dreams Begin Responsibilities that received the highest of praise from writers like T.S. Eliot, who is best known for his post-World War I masterpiece, The Wasteland. Now, T.S. Eliot was certainly in the dark alternative influence chain with such great lines as, I will show you fear in a handful of dust, and this is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. Ooh, I like that. For Delmore. Why are we talking like this? Because <laughs> it's fucking awesome. You know, Delmore Schwartz actually had a, that, a letter that T.S. Eliot wrote to him. Uh, he carried it everywhere, like in his breast pocket, wow. every day until the day he died. Yeah, but for Delmore Schwartz, all this early praise from geniuses like T.S. Eliot seemed to be too much too soon. In the 20 years since the publication of In Dreams Become Responsibilities. Which is amazing, by the way. so fucking good. It's so like five good. pages. You can yeah. find it for free online. Go read it. Yeah. The former Wonder Boy was depressed, divorced, and paranoid, teaching creative writing at Syracuse in mismatched socks and sometimes mismatched shoes, all through a haze of uppers, downers, and a whole lot of booze. Yeah, Lou took a few of Delmore's classes, and soon enough, he just realized, oh, Delmore's just at the bar. <laughs> I can just go to the orange bar yeah. and hang out where Delmore Schwartz is holding court with a bunch of students, you know, pontificating and all that. Yeah, but also like Delmore Schwartz was a highly unstable, extraordinarily paranoid human being. Yes, well, I mean, he was a genius, brilliant mind, and he was also very paranoid. He was convinced that his estranged wife was having an affair with Nelson Rockefeller. Who was like one of the wealthiest people in New <laughs> yes. York at the time, in the world. He had this theory of that, you know, Nelson Rockefeller was paying everyone at Syracuse to spy on him. <laughs> and, you know, like running into Lou's dorm, like, we got to go break into the Rockefeller estate. My wife is being held prisoner there now. Be ready by dawn. I brought the grappling hooks. <laughs> and he just closes the door and Lou just goes back to reading on his bed. <laughs> <laughs> like another pistachio nut. <laughs> but like that was honestly like that that kind of paranoia got worse. And that's why he he kind of 
became estranged from the whole literary crowd and then ended up holding court with a bunch of students, which is a shame, but it's kind of the the end towards the end of his spiral. Yeah, it really is. And, and you know, the what he's talking about, it's known as gang stalking. You know, the, the when you believe, have this paranoid belief that there are there's a conspiracy against specifically you that is just making your life difficult. Right. It's terrible. Now, in this grizzled, middle-aged, drug-addled writer, Lou Reed found a mentor and an influence, specifically when it came to writing style. See, Schwartz used a minimalist writing style, keeping his words simple and his sentences declarative. For an example, here's a short excerpt from Delmore's most well-known story, In Dreams Begin Responsibilities, wherein the narrator is watching the beginning of his parents' courtship in a movie theater. My father wants to settle down. After all, he's 29, he's lived by himself since he was 13, he's making more and more money, and he's envious of his married friends when he visits them in the cozy security of their homes, surrounded, it seems, by the calm domestic pleasures and by delightful children. And then, as the waltz reaches the moment where all the dancers swing madly, then, then with awful daring, then he asked my mother to marry him, although awkwardly enough and puzzled, even in his excitement at how he had arrived at the proposal, and she, to make the whole business worse, begins to cry, and my father looks nervously about, not knowing at all what to do now, and my mother says, it's all I've ever wanted from the moment I saw you, sobbing, and he finds all of this very difficult, scarcely to his taste, scarcely as he had thought it would be, and on his long walks over Brooklyn Bridge in the reverie of a fine cigar. And it was then that I stood up in the theater and shouted, Don't do it! It's not too late to change your minds, both of you! Nothing good will come of it! Only remorse, hatred, scandal, and two children whose characters are monstrous! God damn it, that's the last time I'm going to Union Square Theater. <laughs> There's always that guy, and the rats eat all the popcorn and leave none for us! <laughs> no, it's a beautiful fucking story. You know, there is actually a point in the story yeah. where there's a woman next to him and says, like, Calm down, honey, it's just just a movie. It's just yeah. a movie. It's it, like you can't do anything about this. You can't act like this. <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful short story. Now, from Schwartz's writing, Reed took that minimal language style and transposed it to rock and roll songwriting, as you heard earlier in Pale Blue Eyes. I mean, the first verse. Sometimes I feel so happy. Sometimes I feel so sad. Sometimes I feel so happy. But mostly you just make me mad. Yeah, it's so simple, but it's so deep. Well, he also took and from... And it's relatable. Yeah, exactly. It's relatable. He took from William S. Burroughs. He took from Allen Ginsberg, Hubert S., you know, Selby. Hubert, <laughs> Hubert S. Selby. Hubert <laughs> Selby's, like, last exit to Brooklyn. It's, like, you know, six uh, vignettes, like, six short stories. I mean, he had a Cities of the Night poster in his room nice. in college. He had a... It was a... It's a huge... Huge poster. <laughs> so obviously he's taking a lot of direct influences and especially from Delmore Schwartz, especially that now he has somebody that he can talk to, go back and forth on this, that he's able to transpose this into his short stories and poems that he's writing. Yeah. Now, Schwartz was Lou Reed's mentor when it came to writing. But as far as influences for the music world went, the person who changed what Reed thought was possible when it came to pop music was Bob Dylan. Yes. Specifically on his breakthrough album, the freewheeling Bob Dylan. Well, it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby. Even you don't know by now. And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, baby. It'll never do somehow. When your rooster crows at the break of dawn, look out your window and I'll be gone. You're the reason I'm a-traveling on 
But don't think twice, it's all right. It's just so good. It's Bob Dylan. It's just so good. There's nothing else you can say about that. Yeah, it's just it's just Bob Dylan, man. Now, right here, I think it might be helpful to talk about how the term pop music was used in this time period, the early 60s. Today, pop is a genre and style all of its own. And pop is often a term that's used derisively, sometimes deservedly, sometimes not. But back then, pop music was a catch-all term rather than a genre designation, i.e. anything that was popular was pop. And anything that was popular was, to many people, low art. The intellectualization of music was reserved for classical and jazz, while country was for hillbillies, folk was for the Greenwich Village crowd, and rock and roll was for children. Teenagers at best. Yeah. Nowadays, you have college courses taught on the history of rock and roll. I actually took a pretty good one myself at Texas Tech way back in the early 2000s. But back then, most of the older intelligentsia were actively scoffing at the idea that any of it could be taken seriously. In fact, Delmore Schwartz absolutely despised rock music in all of its forms. I opened a folder on the Beatles just today. (laughs) Oh, they're coming. They're coming soon. And actually, he wasn't wrong about that. The British Invasion did come that year. It did come that year. Or the next year. And actually, there was one fun story where Lou and a bunch of college kids and Delmore Schwartz all sang, I want to hold your hand together one night. Or was that, I want to hold your hand, was it Love Me Do? No, uh, it's one or the other. (laughs) Anyway, one one of the early Beatles songs, yeah, Lou Reed, a grizzled old writer, and a bunch of college kids all singing I Want to Hold Your Hand at the top of their lungs in a bar. One too many Dubonets. Dubonets. <laughs> I don't know. It's some sort of wine that they would drink. But Lou Reed, in trying to find his own place in the world, saw that you could do very intelligent things with what was considered pop music. And the only person doing something like that in Lou Reed's periphery in 1964 was Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan, the legend. I mean, he's not, he's 22 right now. Yeah, hey, he's well on, I mean, he's a legend by 24. Yes, no, he's getting there. He's a singer, songwriter, poet, and then much later, obviously in 2016, Nobel Prize laureate. Yeah. You know, his real name was what? No, and, and by and by 2020, uh, JFK conspiracy theorist. You see, there's so many things that he can do. <laughs> Robert Zimmerman, can, oh, that was his real name, by yeah. the way. Robert Allen Zimmerman. Robert, and, <laughs> Robert, Robert Zimmerman from Hibbon. <laughs> Actually, do you know how he got his stage name, Bob Dylan? No. Uh, he was going to go by Robert Allen because that's his name. But there was a saxophone player named David Allen. Allen with a Y instead of an A, like the second one, you yeah. know, A-L-L-Y-N. Yeah. And he liked that. So he figured, OK, I'll put a Y in my name. And I've just been reading some Dylan Thomas poems because that's what he would do. He would read poem after poem, memorizing them that kind of help him learn to tell the stories. Mm-hmm. So he liked the name Dylan. And it was like Allen with a Y, but the D, that's a stronger sound. So he said, okay, I got it. Here it is. Robert Dylan. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. That's not it. That's not it. Okay, okay. How about Bobby Dylan? No, there's too many Bobbies. Bobby Darren, Bobby B, mm-hmm. Bobby Rydell. Okay, let's not do that. Uh, and so one day he was back home at his state in Minnesota. Where, where was it? Hibbins. In Hibbins. <laughs> no, actually, I think it was in the Twin Cities somewhere. And he was going to go on and someone asked him what his name was. And he just instinctively said, Bob Dylan. That's it. Yeah. That's my name. <laughs> Bob. And then he said the next thing he had to do was get used to being called that. Because <laughs> it'd be like, Bob. And he's like, 
Oh, me, me. Oh, I'm next. Okay. So he had to learn that, which is adorable. Yeah. So Bob Dylan, uh, he's obviously another singer songwriter who felt that popular rock music was too shallow and didn't reflect life in a realistic way. Yeah. So he's like, instead, I'm going to write about you know, rebellion songs about nuclear disarmament, the Cuban Missile Crisis and getting dumped by my girlfriend. <laughs> the yeah. real shit. Yeah, the real shit. No, Don't Think Twice It's All Right is an insanely deep song. Like it, it's a it's a very real, very real. It's much more real uh, than Leave Her For Me. Like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, yes, so much more. very much. But Bob Dylan, he just wasn't another folk singer, yeah. you know, in Greenwich Village. He, he definitely sang folk music, but he's then started gradually writing songs at the same time. He was learning about the world and trying to learn how to make a point yeah. about it. So he would go to the public library and read newspaper articles and find subjects to write on and taking that to a new level with new imagery and, and attitude, one that reflected something no one had heard before. That's a big part of what makes Bob Dylan so special. And I'm barely scratching the surface here. Yeah, just barely. And so when 22-year-old Bob Dylan played at the Regent Theater in Syracuse in November of 1963, Lou, who was just 10 months younger than Bob, was in the audience of that show. And he was blown away by Bob Dylan. And he went home and played along to his records, which he had uh, two at the time, but they were very good. And it might have been one of these times when Lou realized, maybe this is possible. Yeah. To write poetry and make them into songs. You don't have to be do what diddy, diddy, dum, diddy, do. You yeah. can write a short story. You can write a poem. You can set it to music. You can set it to rock music. Yeah. But you can the, use characters. Absolutely. You can be that character. It doesn't even have to be you. You just have to have real, write about real things, about real people. And that will, if, if you're honest and open about it, whether it's you or a composite of you and other people or other people it grabs people's attention and they want to listen to the words so that was what Lou Reed wanted to do obviously his mentor Delmore Schwartz was like go to grad school go to Harvard uh, I can get you in easily and, and Lou could write the next American novel and be the next Delmore Schwartz oh, no. <laughs> or, or Lou could marry Shelley and, and have a couple kids and stay in the suburbs but none of that's going to do no. no that would be way too conventional too narrow so he needed to do what he wanted to do on his own terms mm -hmm. he needed to be out there writing the real things he was ready to go out into like the real world yeah so inspired by the way that bob dylan could elevate what was then known as pop and inspired by the simple language of delmore schwartz's writing lou reed combined his influences moving forward but while dylan's writing influence ran through dylan thomas Reed's was more following the path of controversial beat writer William S. Burroughs, sometimes called the true godfather of punk. See, instead of using euphemisms to talk about real dark shit in rock and roll, Lou Reed went straight for the throat, and in his last days at Syracuse, he wrote one of his best and most influential songs from this perspective. Written from personal experience, this song's aim was to simulate the actual feeling of doing hard drugs. How both thrilling and frightening that feeling is with all of its ups and downs, and how quickly its use can get out of control. Confidently and confrontationally, Lou Reed gave this song the unambiguous title of Heroin. I don't Just where I'm going But I'm Gonna try For the kingdom 
if I can Cause it makes me feel like I'm a man When I put a spike into my vein And I tell you things aren't quite the same When I'm rushing on my run And I feel just like Jesus' son song is everything the real thing is doing to you. It doesn't sound like fun. No, it's not. I, I mean, it's <laughs> real. That's what it is. I, mean, I, I love that song so fucking much. Uh, like, it changed the way I thought about music when I heard it for the first time uh, way, way, way back when, like, in, in college. Uh, but, man, it does not make heroin sound like a whole lot of fun. It makes it sound fucking awful. Yeah, well, that's the point. To show <laughs> the real, the, it's realistic. Yeah. yeah, yeah the, I mean, and there are times where, like, oh, this could be cool, and then it just, sh- like, it, the way it comes up and down and up and down like you feel kind of ill by the end of it you know like a little bit like you definitely you feel uh knocked off balance by the whole thing which i mean i would imagine heroin knocks you off balance a little bit <laughs> just tad. <laughs> just tad. just tad. i don't know we're, we're, we're speculating here. <laughs> so lou graduates with honors with a <laughs> ba in english from syracuse university in 1964 which obviously surprised a lot of people mm-hmm. because supposedly there's a few stories out there where lou got in trouble with the dean for a few things he was on double <laughs> secret probation or whatever you call it uh-huh. um so one of them was for smoking pot one of his friends read him out but the dean couldn't prove it so he warned him all right that's the last time <laughs> and another one was when lou reed was actually writing a student magazine with his friends uh the lonely woman quarterly actually he also wrote it with uh jim tucker yeah. as well uh they released this uh literary magazine and of course that, lonely woman that's a reference to ornette coleman that's right uh it only lasted a couple issues they kind of got bored with it mm-hmm. but in one of them, Lou wrote a profile on a fellow student named Michael Kogan. And now somewhere uh, right out here in the world, I feel like the real Michael Kogan today is like twitching a little bit. <laughs> like he's having lunch with his grandson and he's just like his teacup is just like shaking a little bit. He's like, she's going to tell that story. There's someone fucking bringing it up again. I fucking buried that. I buried that. So Michael Kogan was a fellow student and he was actually uh, one of the leaders of the Young Americans for Freedom organization, which is a right wing conservative uh, group founded by William F. Buckley. Woof. That has boasted members like Ronald Reagan and Jeff Sessions. Woof. Okay. So whatever your politics <laughs> are, well, you know ours. Yeah. So Lou writes this profile on Michael Kogan calling him a reptile who has the American flag placed neatly up his rectum <laughs> and can be heard pontificating over issues like defending McCarthyism with sundry, sophisticated, and misleading arguments. His adeptness arising from what has been rumored to be a misdirected sex drive. Oh, I don't know why 
why that that's fucking, a direct quote. I don't know why misdirected sex drive is such a burn, but fuck it is. And then he called him fat. <laughs> which, that's not cool, Lou. No, not cool. Not cool to fat, James. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so Michael Cogan obviously gets a, a hold of this literary magazine. It's like, oh my God. So he complained and his dad. Well, went, I never. Exactly. His dad. He's like, dad, come over here. Who was a big corporate lawyer, also complained to the dean and wanted Lou expelled and he's like okay I finally I get my chance and according to Sterling Morrison the dean had Michael and his dad come in and found them so obnoxious and so horrible <laughs> that the dean just told Lou just say you're sorry so we can just move on <laughs> and Lou did apologize but according to Michael Kogan he didn't mean it it was a forced apology um, and because he was interviewed for one of the books he was interviewed he for was. Howard Soon's book on Lou Reed and Michael Kogan goes on to say I detest Lou Reed, I found him a loathsome person. Loathsome. <laughs> Who uses he, that like, fucking word? Say, I hate him. I hate him. <laughs> so Lou got off again. He was able to graduate somehow. And as I said, with honors. Mm-hmm. But right after that, he got sick with hepatitis. Yeah. Unfortunately, he had to go back home to Freeport, Long Island and recover from his illness, which he probably got from dabbling from heroin. <laughs> yeah, even dabbling gets you hepatitis. Right. Now, after he recovered from that first of many hepatitis infections, Lou Reed was scouted by a record company representative named Terry Phillips, who ran a label in Long Island City, Queens called Pickwick Records. Remember, Lou Reed, he is not going into the literary direction. He's going to music. Now, Pickwick specialized in copycat albums, which took obscure recordings by established stars and surrounded them with thrown together ripoff songs written by young no-name musicians who could be hired cheap. I.E. Lou Reed. Perfect. See, from what Terry Phillips said, Lou Reed couldn't play or sing, at least conventionally. But Reed had a sound that could sell and a smart point of view. So Terry hired Lou to write cheap imitation songs for Pickwick. From what Lou said, they'd throw him and three other guys into a room and tell them to write 10 California songs, 10 Detroit songs, 10 surf songs, and 10 hot rod songs. And they'd all go downstairs and cut three or four albums in a couple of hours. Wow. This is where Lou Reed came to get to know a studio. Right. As an example of the average song that Lou Reed wrote and recorded for Pickwick, here's him singing with a band billed as the Beach Nuts in the 1964 track Cycle Annie. And this is unmistakably Lou Reed. You'd better watch out for me. Touch 
Yeah, you hear Lou Reed. That's the funny thing about this stuff with Lou Reed is that the stuff that he records during this time period, it's not like really like anything that he records for the first Velvet Underground album, but for the fourth Velvet Underground album <laughs> with Loaded, like, you know, you hear like Shades of Sweet Jane in there. Uh, yeah, you, you, you hear like he kind of goes back to that old style uh, once, you know, once the band changes just a little bit and right. once certain members leave. That's right. So Lurie says that one day he was reading the newspaper and there was an article that said that ostrich feathers were going to be a huge fashion trend. <laughs> so he and his co-workers... Feathers. Yeah, why not? new thing. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, sure. He and his co-workers, full of booze and pills, wrote a song called The Ostrich. And it's fucking weird. I love it. And of course, this, you know, and with all the songs that Lou Reed recorded for Pickwick Records, they weren't released as, you know, written by Lou Reed or recorded by Lou Reed. Like with Cycle Annie, it was released as, you know, a band called The Beach Nuts. And for The Ostrich, it was released under the name The Primitives. That's right. Let's check out The Ostrich. I fucking (laughs) love this song. It's great. It's like some Dr. Demento shit. Okay, so it's not William S. Burroughs in a rock song quite, quite yet. <laughs> no, quite yet. You know, you put your head on the floor and have someone step on it. It's a new dance craze. <laughs> but it's it's just so fucking good. In fact, I mean, it's so weird that like Lou Reed, when his boss told him like, we're going to release that as a single. He goes, really? That? Okay, fine. Yeah, whatever. Fine. fine. And and. The ostrich, even though it is weird, it's still pretty damn catchy. Yeah. Uh, And Terry Phillips thought so, too. He's like, yeah, let's do this as a single. But to promote the single, he needed a touring band who could pretend to be the primitives alongside Lou Reed. Mm. These other primitives were found at a party in New York when Terry was introduced to two musicians named Tony Conrad and John Cale. Within a short period of time, Tony Conrad would leave the primitives leaving Lou Reed and John Cale to form the creative core of what would become the Velvet Underground. Yes! And that's where we'll pick back up for part two. Ooh, okay, great. That's the first episode of No Dogs in Space Season 2. And with a new season comes a new way of doing things. Oh, I love changing things around. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, there was a lot of change last season of like how often episodes would come out. Sometimes we'd be late and sometimes we'd be early. So we are trying now to do it a new way where it'll be consistent. 
every time. Finally. Finally. We're going to try it. Promise it'll be consistent this time. <laughs> so what we're going to do now is that episodes are going to come out weekly once more. But that only goes for individual episodes for each series. There will be intervals between series, probably between three, four, five weeks, something like that. Just, you know, that's just so we have enough time to make these episodes as good as they possibly can be every single time. That's right. So for the Velvet Underground, one, two, three, four and five are going to be weekly. Yeah. And then we take a bit of a break just to catch up and work on the next series a little bit. And then we release those. So that's how it works. So that way you don't have to wait every two weeks to finish the story. Yes. And you also won't uh, hear us so harried and exhausted yes. at the end of those two weeks. You know, because we just we want to make sure that y'all get the best show that you possibly can get. And we mm -hmm. also want to make sure that, you know, we're having fun doing this, too. Yes, <laughs> and, I agree. Yeah, because the more fun we have, the better the show is. But to alleviate a bit of the pain of waiting or to bypass it entirely, mm -hmm. we are starting a Patreon. Oh. OK, so with our Patreon, starting at the lowest level, you're going to get a notification when a new series begins. So you don't have to keep checking on your app to see if there's a new episode. Yep. You'll just get a little email and be like, all right, Modern Lover starts today. Right. It's going to be very helpful. Yeah. And with the next level up, you get a biweekly music news show called New Arrivals, where we discuss events in the music world, new albums, and just generally talk about what's going on in the world of music in our little corner of it mm. or whatever the fuck we want to talk about think of it as our this is kind of our side story yes we'll settle some arguments yeah <laughs> lots of things may happen yeah and on those that we can also like answer you know listener emails if you guys have questions or anything mm -hmm. like that you know that it'll be you know just kind of a relaxed show uh where you guys can uh, be guaranteed to get to hear our voices together at least every <laughs> two weeks and at the highest level you get early access to proper No Dogs in Space episodes before they're released to the general public, served up just as soon as we're done with them. So you just get early access. I mean, that's self-explanatory. Yeah. 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 You just get them as soon as we're done. Yeah. That's it. Off the frying pan into a plate. <laughs> oh, God. I, I made up an analogy. It's weird. <laughs> and since we're doing a Patreon, all No Dogs in Space episodes will now be ad free yeah. whether you subscribe to our patreon or not everyone gets ad free episodes i'm so glad because it was really hard to say words like bespoke post <laughs> <laughs> no more ads i've gotten so many nice knives from them yeah no they're great it's just the words yeah bespoke it's, post it's yeah. so awkward yeah anyway so no more ads no more ads so if you want to uh check that out go to patreon.com slash no dogs in space uh and uh give however much you feel like giving and we appreciate every single one of you yes. uh that can contributes to uh, this funny little muddle right. that we do every week but or every way, other week or every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, free episodes, ad free, no matter what. Yep. No matter what. And so we come to the end of the episode, which means we come to the first band of the week for this season. This band, I fucking love this band and I cannot wait to go see them live because they are a Brooklyn band. They're out of bed -Stuy. They just released a single on Filth Pot Records, which I'm so excited about this because the person who started this, she said that she started this label after listening to our Dead Kennedy series and getting inspired by all this DIY stuff uh, that we talked about last season. Uh, so be sure to check out this band. Their name is Pyrex. Uh, they're hard garage post-punk. It's great shit. It's so fucking good. Uh, so enjoy it, everybody. And uh, we'll see y'all next week for Velvet Underground Part 2. Goodbye. Goodbye.
Goodbye. that it's the call of the crave and when the crave calls you know what to do try the five dollar bacon bundle because the only thing better than a white castle slider is a white castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon so pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider 1921 bacon cheese slider or chicken bacon ranch slider and also get a small fry for just five dollars with the five dollar bacon bundle white castle follow your crave if a friend asks how you're doing And you say, 
I'm okay. When the truth is... I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say... Hang it in there. Because... If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.